Good morning. Have you ever wondered what does the future of the church look like in this country? The newspaper, The Independent, seems to think it's got a pretty good handle on it. Um, in the year 2000, uh, it wrote an article that said, the church in Britain will be dead in 40 years' time. So that was written 22 years ago. So by now, the church should be more than halfway dead in the UK. They were saying that essentially by the year 2040, the church will be pretty much non-existent in this nation. And they also said that churches in cities would be the first to go. So we better enjoy this while we can. <laughs> it's easy to sort of, you know, poke fun at it, roll your eyes a little bit. But it does resonate, doesn't it? We know that the church in this country is nowhere near as strong as it used to be. One of the things that I love to read is um, in, the 19, in sorry, the 1700s, people such as, names you might have heard of, like George Whitfield, John Wesley, would preach in the open air, um, often down in London, but all across the country, really. And they would preach to crowds of up to 15,000 people without one of these. I mean, I can't do, what, 60, 80, whatever it is here today without a microphone. 15,000 people, and literally, as they preached, thousands of people with tears streaming down their faces would give their life to God. I mean, you read it, it's exhilarating stuff. But as you then think about it and reflect a little bit, you realize the number that they were seeing saved literally every time that they would meet, just new people giving their lives to God, is not far off the total number of people who every Sunday are coming to a, attending a Bible-believing church in Manchester. Compared to what we have seen as a nation, we are in a day that of much smaller things. And if you are thinking, the book of Haggai, you may have never even heard of the book of Haggai in the Bible. You're thinking, why are we looking at that? This is why. Because like our current situation, the book of Haggai is written to the people of God in quite literally what it, one of his contemporaries, Zechariah, writes is a day of small things. The Israel at this point, they are a nation where they have seen God move in the big and in the powerful. They've seen the mighty, but now... Certainly, numerically speaking anyway, they are on their knees as a people. But it's written to these people in the day of small things to say, God is not done with you yet. And in fact, despite their, their, their desperately dramatic decline in numbers, the picture that Haggai wants to paint for these people is that the days that are ahead of you they are days of immeasurable glory and triumph. And this is where God is taking you. Quite simply, Haggai wants to say to the people who are doubting and are discouraged, the best of the days of God are yet to come for you. And if you obediently play your part now, if you continue to be faithful and choose to follow God, not only will you usher in those future days of glory that are one day to come, but there is actually more for you now as yourselves to find of God as he looks to restore his presence among his people. And as we look at this first part today, that's exactly what we're going to see. We're going to see God start to awaken his people again, looking to kind of activate a little bit of devotion within his people. And I wonder, I think today for some of us here, 
this morning might actually serve as a bit of a wake-up call for your soul. A gracious wake-up call, but a wake-up call nonetheless to kind of kick-start maybe some of your devotion to God. And where we're going to finish is we're going to see that this wake-up call that God is issuing for his people is a wake-up call to be a people devoted to his presence among them. And we're going to see just how much, as a people, we still, we need to be people defined by and hungering after the manifest presence of God in our midst. And we'll finish with an opportunity, as I said at the top, to pray together and to welcome his, his presence. And, and so if you want to be filled by God, if you want to meet with God today, there is an opportunity at the end. We would love to be able to pray with you this morning. So today's message, if you'd like to take notes, is called Build a Better House. So write that in your notebook, underline it. The book of Haggai, off we go, chapter one. It's only two chapters long, Haggai, so it's a short book. Um, it's in the Old Testament in the minor prophet section. So what this means is it's right near the beginning of the, or right, near, yeah, right near the beginning of the New Testament. So about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, tucked in between Zephaniah and Zechariah. So if you see a Z, you're probably nearby. Um, so I'm going to read from chapter one. If you um, don't have a Bible or you're just struggling to find it, um, the words will be on the screen. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Haggai is it's one of those books where in order to get it, you do really need to know some of the context and the history going around it. But, um, but that's okay, isn't it? We're, we came to church to learn this morning. Yes, a couple of smiles, a couple of people running for the doors. <laughs> but I do think actually understanding some of the context really does help us see why this is such a relevant book for us today. It's written to the people of God after they returned from the exile in Babylon. This exile was the greatest tragedy imaginable for this nation. It was a point of national shame and embarrassment for them. When God formed Israel as a nation. Essentially, he gave them two things. He gave them the land, the promised land after they came out of Egypt. He gifted them this piece of land, 
this is God's gift to you. And then the second thing he gave them was his presence among them, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple as they grew as a nation. And you can kind of think of the land and the presence of God as two foundational stones that their whole identity was built on. Just like England is built upon the two foundation stones of the monarchy and complaining about the weather, Israel was built upon the promised land and the presence of God. And God said to them, if you are faithful to me, I am going to ensure that my presence among you will prosper you and you will be a mighty nation. And that's exactly what happened. Under David, he was the faithful king. He worshipped God. He loved God. And Israel boomed. Victory after victory, expansion, good harvest after good harvest. But then, starting actually with David's downfall himself, a downward spiral. Faithless, idolatrous kings followed on. Self-serving, self-reliant, God-forgetting kings, and Israel started to shrivel. And you know that, you know when you make a few bad decisions, and you find yourself in a bit of a bad place, and there's something within you that then just wants to keep making self-destructive decisions, that's exactly what happened to Israel. They, st- they started to go astray and things started to go bad. Harvests were bad. Enemies started to encircle them. Pressure was on. Instead of turning back to God as they should have done in their panic and in their distress and in their desperation, they just turned to other gods and started making deals with other nations and went further astray until finally God knew the only way of getting their attention was extreme action. And so the things that God had given them started to go. They lost that first foundation stone that they had, the presence of God, as the glory of God left the temple. And then shortly after that, as a weakened nation, without the presence of God, vulnerable to their enemies, this nation Babylon rose up and came and overcame them. And this nation was taken into slavery and taken into exile away from their land no longer having the presence or the land taken into slavery in Babylon. For any other nation, this defeat would be totally humiliating. But for Israel, it's a whole nother level. Because they know they have lost everything that their whole identity is built upon. And it's because of their own disobedience and faithlessness. But God is faithful. And God showed his faithfulness and his sovereignty to his people that after then 70 years of being in exile, he engineered whole empires and rulers to make sure that his people could come free. His people could return to the land and he released them. Their exile was ended. Their shame and their embarrassment and their tragedy was over and they returned. They came back to the land, this land that was now devastated and in ruins, but it was theirs again. And God spoke, he commissioned them and said, rebuild, rebuild the temple, re-inherit the promise, re-inherit the gift, and have my dwelling among you again. Now that's a lot of backstory. Well done for going with me. But as I said, I think it's really helpful to have all of that in mind because as we see the people of God returning from this exile, I think we see a lot of our last two years in that story. A time of unprecedented 
national tragedy and loss, where the normal way of living has been completely disrupted as they are exiled or, if you like, isolated from all that they knew. And now, finally, they are able to return to something that looks a little bit like normal. And they're able to continue again in all that God's called them to and to to be the people they're meant to be. But they have been changed by all that they have been through, by this period of tragedy and loss. And they are returning, same land, but a very different world, a very different time. And as we said at the top, in a day of now very small things. I don't know if you ever find yourself losing hope in God. Maybe discouraged by what God is doing in our day or what God is not doing perhaps in our day. Thinking, is the church just going to fade into nothing? I'm gradually, maybe God's gradually losing interest in us, his people. I think the book of Haggai is given to us as a people so that we can look back and see God knows what he is doing. That we can look back and see his people have been this way before. That in a day so similar to ours, the people of God going through something that looks like this, they saw the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God amongst them. In fact, before he's done with us, Haggai is going to take us from this day of small things to a promise of the Lord Almighty shaking the nations in order to accomplish his grand purposes. And how he's going to lead his people to experience, in his words, a greater glory than all that has gone on before. And God here wants to bring about these days of greater glory by awakening his people to play their part. And so he speaks through this prophet, Haggai. He comes to his people and he speaks in, as we see very specifically in that first verse, on the sixth month, on the first day, the second year, we know exactly when God is speaking to his people. This is now 20 years after the people of God have returned. 20 years after God has burst open the gates of Babylon and the people are able to come streaming back to their nation and free again as they come back now humbled and repentant before God, saying, God, this time it is going to be different. We have learned our lesson. We know what we have done. We are going to be faithful, and we are going to be obedient this time. And actually, as we look in the book of Ezra, we see they are. Almost immediately when they return to their land, they get on with it. With zeal and enthusiasm, they start to build the temple. They get on with restoring all that they had lost as a nation. And now, 20 years later, we join them. And in case you haven't built any, any temples recently, 20 years for a people, plenty of time to build a temple. So we're curious and excited to see this finished product in place, right? We think, oh, I wonder what cornices they went for and what color scheme for this new temple they might have picked. Whether they go for something trendy or did they just go for, you know, classic? Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They have been drawn back by God by one assignment, to rebuild the temple and to resettle in the land. And they have decided, actually, the time has not yet come. 
they have been recipients. They know of completely undeserved favor and mercy and goodness from God. A second chance has been given them, an opportunity not just to be God's people again, but an opportunity to play their own part in this great story and mission that God has invited them into. And their response is a collective, meh, maybe later. You think, what has happened? If we're being charitable and think love believes the best, we will just think maybe they just haven't been able to. Maybe they didn't have any of the resources or the time that they would need to be able to build something. Continuing in verse 4, God says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? And then again in verse 9, he says, My house lies in ruins. That's God speaking. While each of you busies himself with his own house. This contrast that God draws with his people is, says it twice, his house versus their house is absolutely devastating. Saying there's two houses. The first is the one that the people are dwelling in. And not only are these houses complete and inhabitable, but they are paneled houses. And this word is a little bit sort of debated, not quite sure what it means, but it either means it's got a roof or it might mean that it is elegant and luxurious. Or there's a good chance it means both of those things. Can't have an elegant, luxurious house without a roof, can you? (laughs) Behold, let's not get into it. (laughs) But all the while, the house that the Lord should be dwelling in is in ruins. Clearly, they have got the time. They've got the money to build, but they have devoted it entirely to their own house, their own interests, their own lives again. These people, they started so well with such zeal. They came back saying, God, we're going to do it this time. Just watch us go. And just 20 years later, they've fallen back into the life that led them into the ruin in the first place. God literally lies forgotten while they build their own houses. When we hear about these panelled houses, it is easy, I think, for us to start to imagine they were just building the most extravagant, ostentatious houses and lifestyles you could possibly imagine, just gobbling up as much wealth as they could, accumulating possession after possession. But the reality, of course, as we've said already, is they have returned into a deeply uncertain world, these people. They are weak and poor as a nation, enemies surrounding them. As they first return to rebuild this nation, they are building from the bottom up. They've got essentially nothing that you need in order to be a functioning society. They've got no crop fields for food. They don't have any houses in which to live in. They don't have infrastructure for gathering clean water. They don't have governmental structures in order to have a a good society. They don't even have Starbucks. I mean, they have nothing to be a functioning society. And now, they, to put it simply, I guess they, they've just got a ton of urgent needs right in front of them. And from their perspective, building a temple meets none of them. Temple's not going to give us food. Temple can't defend us. Temple can't give us fresh coffee. And they just couldn't see it. They couldn't see how devoting themselves to building God's house was really going to give them everything that they needed. 
How is it actually going to help us? That when it came down into the weeds of their everyday life, they thought, how is devoting myself to serving God going to give us what we require? God was still on their radar. They had intention to get to him at some point. As we saw in verse 2, the time has not yet come. But their zeal had gone cold. They struggled to see how God could help them now. And I think, like the returning remnant, we are in a time where we're rebuilding our lives. And as we see with Israel, in that rebuilding process for them, they, they'd lost sight of what's really important in their lives, what life is really meant to be about for them. And what they then needed was the voice of God to come to them, to be awakened once again, for their eyes to open up and for them to see this is who we're meant to be and to refocus them, to, to see life as it really is and to recommit themselves and be recommissioned into all that they are and all they're called to be. And I do believe that this morning, some of us, we need to hear this same word from God, to be reawakened in our soul. Maybe you once had zeal and passion for God. Perhaps just like the, the people as they first returned from, from Babylon. But over time, you just know, gradually, my devotion has gone cold. I've lost that spark. God has actually slipped down my priority order. Or maybe as we have returned from the pandemic and life has been just thrown up in the air and now it's kind of coming down to settle and you're reordering and rebuilding in this new normal that we live in. This is the message that you need to hear in order to see that actually your life has become a bit more about building your own house, seeking to build towards your own interests and your own comfort, maybe even your own glory rather than God's. Maybe you've been meaning to get to God at some point, but other things have just seemed much more urgent. And if you know this morning, I think God is speaking to me. He's getting your attention. You maybe feel that gentle conviction of the Holy Spirit. Hear these words from God. Verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. We hear this twice in this passage here and in verse 7. Consider your ways. These are the tender, compassionate words of a gracious and loving Father in heaven to you. Make no mistake, these are words of urgency from God. This word comes in the imperative form. It is a call to action. It's a call to change. God is saying, I do want you to see what is going on. I do want you to change as a result. There's no doubt about it. This is God trying to issue a wake-up call. But it is the gentlest of wake-up calls from God. This is not a heavy-handed command coming down from God Almighty, but an appeal, speaking to our hearts. He's saying, I want you to see things as they actually are and make a decision, as you see, to come to me. This is who God is. Every single time as we rebel, as we turn from him, we forget, we dedicate ourselves to building our own house instead of him. 
every single time he comes and he speaks to our hearts. He looks to use his voice to stir our souls once again to turn to him. And with no hint of frustration or anger, he simply just wants to see us, see us to see what we're missing out on. Verse 6. You have sown much, but you harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. He's saying you've focused on building your own house because you thought it would meet all of your needs if you just gave yourself to that. But don't you see you're lacking so much? Don't you see that the harvest you're pulling in is way below your expectations, that you might have eaten, but your stomach is nowhere near full. You've drunk, but you're still thirsty. You've put on all your clothes. You're still cold, which, if you ask my wife, is the single worst thing that can happen to you. Still cold. And then the word picture he ends the verse with is you're earning wages and you're putting them in a bag. It's got holes in the bottom. You're losing out. He's saying, that life that you're building, is it, is it really delivering? That if you're honest, is it, is it satisfying you? Is that relationship that you're in, is it actually making you happy? Those extra hours you're pulling just to get a little bit of an increase in the pay that you're bringing home, is it really delivering the joy that you thought it would? If you were to get that whole new wardrobe, do you, do you really think that it would make you whole? And he ties it together in verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. In this verse, I think encapsulated is so much of the heart of God to us. Do you know that he does not want us to end up with little? Do you know that? Do you know that God does not actually want us to end up with little? I know this. I'm teaching about it, that he wants us to have much. He wants us to have abundance. He wants us to have plenty. And yet, as much as I might know it, I find it so hard to live and act as though this is actually true. There is something deeply lodged within me, and I think within all of us, that thinks God's a bit of a killjoy, isn't he? God doesn't really want me to be happy. God's holding back from me a little bit. He wants us to be a little bit miserable. This was the original lie in the Garden of Eden, that as a snake came to Eve, essentially what he was saying is, don't you think that God is holding back from you a little bit? And so as we have that thought lodged within us, like Adam and Eve, we try and take matters into our own hands. We think, if God's holding back from me, the only way that I will ever have a good life is if I make it happen for myself and get hold of it. And so then we work and we toil and we devote ourselves to building our panelled houses because we think it's the only way that we'll ever be provided for because we struggle to believe that there really is a God in the heavens who loves us so much that he wants to make sure that we are blessed and abundantly provided for beyond measure. And here he's saying, I want you to not have little. I want you to have much. So do not be satisfied with the house that you can build for yourself. Come to me and build mine. And that's exactly what he says in verse 8. 
go up to the hills, bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. An invitation here to build the house of the Lord. We get that phrase, house of the Lord, four times in our text. And it's always good practice, in, particularly in the Old Testament. If a phrase is repeated over and over again, we can know that's what the author is trying to emphasize. This is taking a central place in our passage. It wants to get our attention. And Haggai is repeating this over and over again because he wants us to see that God wants the house of the Lord that currently lies in ruins to take a central place among his people again. This verse can sound like God is just essentially setting a hard task for his people to do for him. Go up to the mountains, lug a bit of wood around, a bit of manual labor will set these people straight. But as he asks his people to rebuild his temple, what is the language that he uses every, each of the four times? Build me a house. Just as the people have built paneled housing in Jerusalem that they are now dwelling in, as we saw in verse 4. So he's saying, build me a house in Jerusalem, somewhere where I too can dwell among you and with you. Make me a place so that I can be with you and in your midst. God is saying, I want to restore my presence among you as a people. This is a running narrative that we're going to see throughout Haggai, the restoring of the temple of God so that the people can enjoy a greater measure of his glory and his presence among them. Next couple of weeks, we'll see it explicitly as God says to his people, I am with you. To a people who struggle to believe God is really for them, that God really wants to give to them, this is how God responds. He makes a way to give his people himself. This is how much we can know that God is for us. We strive so much to build our paneled houses, we end up with little. And here God says, come to my house and come and enjoy my presence. Come and enjoy much. Come and enjoy abundance with me. This is the wake-up call that God has for his people. Not just that your paneled houses are not going to satisfy you, so you stop building those, but you need, you need the house of God. You need my presence among you to be a people once again defined by the presence of God in your midst. And I wonder if maybe this is the wake-up call that we need to hear, that the prophetic challenge perhaps for us as a church maybe even for the church in the UK, is that we need, we need the presence of God. We need him amongst us. We need to know what it is like to be with him. We need to know what it is like as a church family to welcome his presence and to know God is in the room with us and he's moving amongst us and he's filling us and he's resting upon us. We need him amongst us. To know God is with us, not just as a theological truth, not just as a, as a knowledge up here, but through awestruck encounter and experience of him. 
I've had the privilege in my own life through the years of having these times of meeting with God and encountering him in powerful ways. Ways that, where I've known God is in the room and it has radically impacted my faith. And in fact, just this week, I um, went to Nottingham with a few people from the church and we had this, this gathering of some of the leaders from um, Grace Connection, our family of churches. And just throughout the day, I had two profound encounters with God again. And one of which included me sort of folded in half over the chair in front of me, weeping in the presence of God. <laughs> you don't have to have an experience like that, but he is still meeting with his people today. He wants us to be a people who know his presence and know what it is like to meet with him, to surrender before him and say, God, we, we just want to know you. Because when we have times like that, it's not just about having an experience, but it takes our relationship and our friendship and our belief that God is real just to a whole other level. It's so easy for us to try and do church live Christian lives, in large part disconnected from or not acknowledging that the presence of God is real and tangible amongst us. And I, I just think that there is such an opportunity before us as a church and on an individual level, as we're in this process of rebuilding, reordering and rethinking about what is life going to look like, to just as, the, as Haggai was saying to these people, to allow the presence of God, the house of God to take a central place in our life a central place of seeking after him, saying, God, nothing else is going to do. I definitely can't build my own paneled house and that will be satisfactory. I need your house. I need you. This is why he came for us. This is why he came down, that we would have what was lost, that we would be able to enjoy his presence and experience his glory. That when he came 2,000 years ago, he came as the house of the Lord, the presence of God on earth. But this time it wasn't bricks and stones, but flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. And he came to tear down the old, to replace it with the new. Destroy this temple, he said. And in three days, I will raise it up again. And so they destroyed the temple. In nailing Jesus to the cross, they tore down the house of the Lord. They tore down the presence of heaven here on earth. But just as he promised, Jesus raised it up three days later. He rebuilt his temple at the resurrection. And more than as he rebuilt it, he made it not of bricks and stones, not of flesh and blood, his own flesh and blood, but now of living stones. Us, his church, me, and you, made to house the presence of God. More than at any other time since Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, even more than this time when the remnant were returning from Babylon, we are made to be people of the presence of God. It's what we're made to be. It's what he's created us as new creations to be through the gift of the poured out Holy Spirit that he would be in us, He'd be with us, he'd be around us, he'd be resting upon us. And encountering God, it really is it's for everyone. Whoever you are, wherever you've come from, whatever your background, whatever your experience, none of us deserve this. All of us are like 
is returning Israel in our passage. All of us are rebellious. We're hard-hearted. Our devotion to him is dull. We're obsessed not with him, but with building our own house. But yet in his tenderness and his compassion, he says to us, consider your ways. He calls us back to himself. He awakens our souls. He stirs our spirit. Maybe you are feeling the stirring in your spirit this morning. You know God is speaking to you, awakening your soul again. Don't be satisfied with your own house. Come and experience much in him. And we're going to have a time now to pray and welcome his presence. Um, I wonder if we could have the, just the musicians, perhaps, just for a bit of, in this echoey room, just to minimize noise distraction. I want to make an opportunity in a moment for two groups of people to respond um, and to come forward so that we can pray for you. There's nothing special about coming forward. just helps us be able to do that. Um, firstly, for those that know, my devotion has gone cold. I know that the passion that I had is just not there anymore. And I feel him speaking to me this morning. He's waking me up to him. And you want to put it right with him. Well, secondly, you just think, I want to devote my life, center my life around the presence of God. Maybe I have just ignored the fact that God is present and accessible for me. I want more of him again. Or maybe for the first time. We would love to pray for you if all you, all you are saying is, I just want to know him better. I want a closer relationship with him. But before I ask you to come forward, we're not going to sing a song, but can I just invite you to stand it? Or you can stay receiving from him in some other way, but you might find it helpful just to begin by standing and it will make it easier for you if you do want to.